This is the 4th of July, and I want to speak to us about our nation. I think it's very important that we understand the times we live in and discern the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to minister to us through prayer. Father, we ask you that as we turn to the word of God, that you'll quicken our minds to understand what the Spirit is saying to the church that we would discern the hour and the day for this nation, that we would take our place, Lord God, for this nation, and that each one would stand in the place, the gap of intercession that you would have us to stand in for souls to be saved and this nation to be turned around. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to share with you this morning is, is uh, uh, a sermon that I call Everyone Must Sow. It's time for everyone to get to the fields. Uh, there was, in the early history of the Americans, it was called, there was called the Minuteman. And the Minuteman was someone who was a farmer or who owned land and would plow and work. But because of the American Revolution, uh, at any moment they had to be ready to stand on the battlefield. And so they were called Minutemen. And I believe that we're in that time and place now where every Christian must be a minute man. You must be available immediately to stand your ground for the kingdom of God. And I believe that as minute men, it's time for every one of us to sow. We don't leave this, we cannot leave this up to professional clergy. We can't leave it up to those who are just a little more exuberant in their faith. If you want to save this country from either the, the well, the destruction that uh, the uh, Antichrist spirit will bring to it or the judgment that God will bring to it, then you need to be a minute man you, or woman, if you will. You need to stand in your place as a Christian. Now, I'm not going to go over uh, the lengthy discussion on how the United States was based on a Judeo-Christian foundation. Uh, there are many who have tried to rewrite American history saying that most founding fathers were deists. Uh, most of that is, is foolishness. Uh, we do have the writings of the founding fathers. We do have their biographies. We do have their autobiographies, their personal diaries, and their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be duped in, in your public education to think that this nation was not founded on Christian principles. It was. And uh, you can prove it when you read them, and they make reference to God and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to go into that. It's, it's obvious. The good thing is it's in the, on the books. It's in the history. We don't have to rewrite something to make it happen. It's here. We just got to get back to it. And we've got to stand our place to get there. Now, that's why it takes everyone to take that spot. Now, the main spirit that kills uh, the government of a republic is apathy. We, have, we are a republic pledge allegiance to the flag for the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. It's a democratic or a democracy form of government, but a republic is one that uh, uh, votes in those who will legislate what the people want. And that is the basis of a republic. Now, uh, for a republic to fail, it's the people who become apathetic because we elect certain people to represent us. If we are too apathetic to vote and too apathetic to carry out our moral conviction to vote for those who are going to represent us, 
then it's our own fault that this nation would fail as a Christian nation because we've been duped and not uh, electing proper representation of those who say that they would represent us. Now, I don't know what political persuasion you may be, but either party, Republican or Democrat, have used Christians, I would say, long enough. We'll do this for you or we'll say that for you, and nothing's really changed, I would have to say. So we've been pawns in this political system. And uh, we need to not be apathetic. Everybody must sow, so everybody must show. All right, we cannot afford to be apathetic when it comes to defending our nation from an antichrist spirit. And get this correct, folks this isn't a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is a kingdom issue. This is kingdom, it's non political. The answer to our political problems is not politics, it's the kingdom of God. That is the solution for our nation. We may have to work through a political system, but you better just show up spiritually. The way this nation is going to get back on course to its Judeo-Christian ethics is for the church to rise up and speak the kingdom of Christ once again. And I'm going to prove that to you through American history. A good citizen must be good political stewards. We do have to move through a political system, but you show up in a kingdom manner. We need the fivefold ministry to show up to educate this nation. And so the kingdom of God must be presented in every aspect of life. The way we're going to change our representation at the highest levels is to change those who are voting for the representatives. That would be you and I, the people, your neighborhood, and those round about us. We must begin preaching the kingdom of God. We must not be fooled into thinking that if we're better Republicans or better Democrats, we can change the face of this nation. You better be better Christians first and foremost if we're going to change this nation. Are we getting this? We have got to seek God on a greater level. We have got to speak kingdom. And we've got to move in kingdom with our neighbors. You can get trapped into debates as to this candidate or that candidate. Why don't you tell them about King Jesus? Let's move into the political realm of the spirit. Because right now, the spirit of antichrist, everything anti-Christian is being propagated at every level of legislature doesn't matter how many Christians are in the house or not, it's happening. And it'll continue to happen if the people stay apathetic. And the church is absolutely apathetic concerning the kingdom of God. And we must repent. We must repent. The kingdom must be presented in every aspect of life. The only way to save America is through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the intercession of the church for our political leaders and for this nation. Now, don't think for a minute that we have got a Norman Rockwell history of America. Even since the beginning of America, we have had a Judeo-Christian ethic and a belief for what this nation should be. And at the very beginning of this nation, sin abounded as well. And there have been tares in the midst of the wheat field all along the way. There has been corruption and sin and murder and bigotry and all sorts of uh, nasty things in America since its beginning. 
So don't think that we've got to get back to good old America. Well, going back a ways wasn't so great for a lot of people. We've got to go into what the vision of this nation was meant to be. And so we must continue in the kingdom of God. And we must celebrate that. The grace has always abounded. I thank God for the United States of America because grace and the, and the gospel of Jesus Christ has kept this nation on course. If not for the Lord Jesus Christ and His church in the United States and the Christian faith, this nation would have failed long ago. But because of grace, we have seen major strides in this nation breaking loose of those who have tried to put other people in bondage and in sin. And it's time for us to rise again. It comes in cycles. The revivals have come in cycles in this nation, and it's what this nation needs once again, another spiritual awakening. That is not going to happen if the church doesn't begin to pray and repent. And so it's time for revival. Now, revivals are our only hope, and at this July 4th, we celebrate this great nation. It is the greatest nation on earth. It is the best place on earth to live, but we need to preserve, and we need to get it out of its uh, decline, and that is an antichrist decline. Now, while elements such as mass conversions, this is what a revival is. Consider this. Elements such as a mass conversion of non-believers and the beneficial effects on the moral climate of a given culture may be involved. Revivals in reality are founded in Christians as being the restoration of the church itself to a vital and fervent relationship with God after a period of decline. In other words, a revival is for the church. Get this. You see, we think revival... Is, is to get the lost saved. A revival is a church word. It has to do with God's people. You can't revive the world. The world's dead in trespasses and sin. You can't revive a corpse. But you can revive a church that has lulled into apathy. So revival has to start in the church. When the church is revived, the church then preaches the gospel and conversions happen and people get saved. And so if you're looking for the revival to get people saved, you first got to look for the revival to get the church alive again. Revived. And the way to get the church revived is to come back to the cross of Jesus Christ and look to the supremacy of Jesus above all other things. You see, what happens is the outside world begins to seep in and cause a, looking, a lukewarm effect on the church and its effect in its culture. When Jesus does a taste test of individual churches, ooh, that's hot. Wow. Wait. Oh, boy. Whoo, South Africa church. You, ooh. Oh, that's hot. That's good. It takes a taste of Woo! South America, ice cold, refreshing to me. Revival in South America. Oh, yeah. Let me taste American church. That's, Luke. That, that's not cold and that's not hot. That's the same temperature as the world is. 
And that's what that verse means. If we become so like our, the same temperature as the environment around us, that is a sad commentary. Could it be that the Lord would say the church in the United States has become lukewarm? That we have become the same climate as the society we live in? I would say most definitely we're the same climate as the world we live in. We're entertained by the same entertainment. We speak the same way that the world speaks. There's as much divorce in the church as outside the church. There's as much moral failure in the leadership of the church as there is in corporations and businesses. I mean, I don't see much of a difference at all in the church. And so we must come back in revival to Jesus Christ. Whenever there's a revival, it starts in the house of God, and then its impact supernaturally moves out into souls being saved. That's the second mark of revival, souls being saved. And when souls are being saved, the third mark comes in, a moral change of climate comes to a society. Because the people then have been affected by the salt and light of the church. So these three elements must take place. Revival in the church conversion of the lost, and a change to the moral climate of the society. That's what must be done in revival. We can look through the history of the United States. In 1727, get that date, 1727, that's before the Revolutionary War. 1727, the first great awakening took place Jonathan Edwards preaching in his pulpit about the wrath of God, a sinner in the hands of an angry God, hanging by the very thread over the pit of hell. People quaked and shuddered in their seats because he was preaching in the church because most people attending church in 1727 were Christian by name but were not by conversion. He preached salvation in the church, and people finally were getting saved. It began a revival that was called the Great Awakening. It flooded this nation. In fact, preachers began preaching in the pulpit this great salvation. And the reason America moved into a revolutionary war and separated itself from England was because of the fervency of the church and the preaching from the pulpit. 1792 is called the Great Kentucky Revival, where the outpouring of God poured into the Midwest and people in the church began to get on fire for Jesus and began preaching. It wasn't too long after that, in 1830, as that Kentucky Revival ramped up by 1830, uh, Charles Finney, uh, David Brannard came and the Second Great Awakening took place. Awesome move of God. Charles Finney has his accounts on revival, talks about times when he would just get on an elevator with people and they would begin weeping. They didn't even know who he was. They'd begin weeping and falling to their knees and say, I must have this Jesus. People would ride into towns into upstate New York and as soon as they crossed the border into Rome, New York, uh, uh, they would fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amazing revival, but it started in the church and it moved to the lost and then to the change of the climate of the society. The second great awakening. Well, in 1857, the third great awakening came with people such as Moody and Spurgeon. It was estimated in 1858 that 50,000 conversions happened weekly. I'll say it again. 50,000 people getting saved 
per week in the United States. That's what's happening in China right now. That's what's happening in South America right now. That's what's happening in Africa right now. Those numbers are taking place, but not here. And it's time for it to happen here again. Don't think we're being passed by. If you're not looking, you won't see it. We've got to open our eyes. The third great awakening. Uh, uh, and you're looking at, you know, 100 years, then 80 years, then 50 years as intervals. In 1882, a period of unusual evangelistic effort began to burst forth. In 1904, the Pentecostal revivals began to break out all throughout the United States. In 1906, the Azusa Street revival took place. In 1907, the uh, International Fellowship of Christian Assemblies, which we are a part of, that revival started in Chicago. We were birthed as a denomination out of this revival period in 1907. The 1940s and the 1950s brought revival healing messages and tents uh, meetings across the United States and people like Billy Graham beginning to move out with an evangelistic move. In the 1970s, the Jesus people moved through California and now flooded the United States in revival and a turn back to the Word of God. And in the 2000s, there have been pockets of revival that are shooting up all over the country at an accelerated pace. I am telling you, we're on the verge of revival and that is what is essential to save this nation. So let me share with you what that means on this great 4th of July, which began as a religious holiday. Let me take you to the Bible and let us understand probably one of the greatest revivals, the book of Jonah. Let's look at that revival for a minute. Nineveh was a corrupt city. You can read this story a little later. I'm just going to give you some keynotes. It was the greatest revival where 120,000 people uh, repented in the matter of a couple days. 120,000 people. And what was the message? Repent, for judgment is coming. There's the message. It was not accompanied by signs and wonders. It was not accompanied by a massive band, a light show, or fog machines. It was not accompanied by any great name preachers. The message was brought by one who didn't want to bring it and didn't want to express it and was hesitant in everything he said and hoped it would not be effective. Maybe we should take all of our formulas and throw them out. What was the result? Everyone in that city repented to such an extent that they even took sackcloth and ashes and laid them over their animals. The effect of that revival lasted a hundred years in that city of Nineveh. So what do we learn from that? Revival is not dependent upon the messenger or the motives of the messenger. Revival is dependent upon a repentant people and the visitation of God. 
we look at these revivals that are happening in the United States, and I'll point out one of them down in Florida. Uh, uh, oh, what's the dude? What was his name? That uh, Todd Bentley, uh, made an amazing, awesome revival. And we look to his fall, and we say the revival must have been false. Look at Jonah. It's not the messenger. It's who's repenting. God will get the job done. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He prefers the sticks to be straightened. And he'll deal with them as he did with Jonah. He's merciful. And he'll, he'll work with them and work with whoever brought the revival and whoever failed the revival and however the revival went askew because of flesh or foolishness. But true repentance is what counts. And in Nineveh, true repentance came and God moved. And so what's going to bring revival to the church? What's going to bring us back to God? Is it going to be one leader, one speaker, one DVD, one person that's got the anointing? It's going to take the body of Christ coming to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't wait for the big guy to show up in town. Don't wait for the next best speaker, the next best formula that was written and is now the latest Christian bestseller. Get on your hands and knees and begin to cry out to God. Let revival start here. We could start a revival in our city if we would come together and cry out to God in repentance for the church and begin to live as true Christians should live. Ooh. That's what it takes, brothers and sisters. Let me read to you what Charles Finney said about uh, a revival. Uh, uh, and uh, he's got an amazing book called Lectures on Revival that you should look at. This man was an amazing man that saw uh, uh, amazing revival in such ways that I told you that even just his presence on an elevator or in a, in a he, he visited a factory one time and the factory shut down for revival. He was on a tour. He didn't even preach. Bars and places shut down in entire cities. They, they completely changed because people caught the spirit of repentance because they saw the supremacy of Christ, not a man. Listen to what Charles Finney says concerning revival. Revival is not a miracle. Revival has nothing to do with miracles. Oh, what? Wait a minute. I thought it was all about the supernatural. And Finney would say, no. Signs and wonders may accompany those things, but that's not revival. Finney says this, is it a miracle when a man puts a seed in the ground and it begins to grow a plant? Is that a miracle? Or is that the order in which God said things would happen? He says that's the way it is with revival. If we would sow the word of God properly and it is planted, it will not return void, and sinners will get saved. If the church would come and die before the cross and exalt Jesus above themselves, we would then reach a lost world, and naturally, in the kingdom of God, there would be a revival that would change this nation. We're all looking for the miraculous. I didn't feel it tonight. No, I didn't see anybody get healed. When's revival coming? 
when the church would do what the Bible says to do. There it is. Charles Finney says it doesn't take a miracle. Just obey God, and we'll begin to see revival. He said revival is as naturally as the result of the use of the appropriate means as a crop is of use of its appropriate means. Sow seed, water it, and it will produce a harvest. Revival is not a miracle, not dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means as much as any other effect produced by the application of a means. Heavy, isn't it? In other words, do what the Word says and it'll produce. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. Let me show you something in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. Right before the book of Joel, it says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Hosea 6. I'm going to wait for you. You need to get there. Oh, hallelujah. Fireworks on the 4th of July. Real fireworks. A life exploding for God. Look at that Hosea 6, chapter 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. If we don't do this thing, if we, the church, don't get ourselves into the right positioning with Christ, if we don't follow the Word of God and come to pursue Christ and Christ alone, leaving our flesh and worldly desires behind, if we would seek Him, if we don't do that, He'll tear us to pieces. Rightfully so. For a father who loves a son disciplines him. We've got to pray for the discipline of God to come upon the church in the United States. Maybe it's already begun. But if we don't have the discipline of a loving father, we will be left for the world to ravage us. And so we pray, tear us to pieces, because he'll heal us. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will come revive us. And on the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains, and water the earth. Yes, the Lord will bring revival. He will pour out His Spirit upon His people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent of their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. He's got rain for us, brothers and sisters. You don't need a miracle for this. We don't need to feel something compelled by the Spirit. We need to come to God and lay before Him a people who will lay their lives down for Him. I will be as bold as to say, give up all your careers and aspirations to retire with wealth. Ha ha! 
That's over. Now will you turn your face to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take away our retirement. Take away the big three. Take away this. Take away that. What do we got left? Each other. Serving a living God. Now that's when you turn a world upside down. Take away the distractions. Tear them up, God. And then bind us together. Heal us. Seven essentials. I conclude with this. Seven essentials for planning a revival in our nation. This must start here in us. Number one, pray. Pray. How are we to pray? Consider prayer, not simply petition. Petition and supplication is good and correct. But begin to pray by releasing the will of God. Begin to pray for this nation, for this church, for this community. You've been sowing hard this year into this community. I'm so proud of this church as to how you have labored into this community. You've labored through Praise in the Park. You've labored through each. You've been laboring through all the activities and outreaches. Now let us continue to labor by declaring, Thus saith the Lord, into this realm and into this city. Begin to pray for this church that we would begin to move in the fire of God and a hunger for Him for the deep things of God. Pray, pray, pray. Every day, begin to pray. It'll begin to break up the fallow ground. Secondly, fast regularly. We must fast regularly. Fast from particular things, whatever they may be, but begin to get your flesh in line with the Spirit of God. Paul said, I have to buffet my flesh. We have to get this flesh from being so controlling of our lives. And fasting is one of the best disciplines to do that. Fast for a day from something that you're addicted to so that you begin to see the reality of where you stand in your spiritual life. We need prayer. We need fasting. Thirdly, do justice. Be zealous for good works. When you're in the parking lot at at Kroger's or Kmart, do what is just and right. Help someone out. Help all people. Give grace all around you. Love at all times. Esteem others more highly than yourself. Begin to walk like Jesus. Do justice. Four, give extravagantly. Brothers and sisters, we fund more sin than we fund righteousness. Everyone in this congregation is guilty of it, and I'll go first. I'm under the conviction of the Lord. I fund more of my money out to sinful things than for the kingdom of God. I buy more food to supply my flesh than I do food for the Spirit of God to reach the lost. Consider it. Consider it. We spend more money on DVDs and movies and going out to eat instead of funding the kingdom of God. We'll get by with putting a few things in the offering plate as we can. Oh God, get a grip on my wallet, on my heart. I'm getting all convicted right in front of you. I am. I'll repent before you. It's me he's talking to. You just happen to be in the room. Oh, if we would fund the kingdom of God. 
Live holy lives. What I say by holy lives, be fruitful in the Spirit. Live the fruit of the Spirit. Be faithful in what you do. Be good in what you do. Love, joy, peace, patience. Holy living is the fruit or the byproduct of the Holy Spirit. It must manifest in our midst. We rate our righteousness based on what we don't do. That does not produce anything holy. Well, I don't swear, I don't gamble, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't do this, I don't do that. What do you do? None of that. Then you don't do anything for the kingdom. We must live the fruit of the Spirit. We must give joy, give peace, give love, give patience, give gentleness, give faithfulness, give self-control. There's a holy life. Six, everyone in this room must lead diligently. We must lead as a people. You have all been called to be a priest of the Most High God. Get off your scooter and coasting and get into the act of leading. We all must lead. Wow, this is a heavy 4th of July celebration. I told you fireworks today. Last of all, we must speak boldly. We cannot be timid. That is not of the Spirit of God. Timidity is not the Spirit God gave to us. He gave us a spirit of love, power, and a sound or ordered mind. That's what we must do. Be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I conclude only a God-given reawakening in Christ will bring revival to the church, which will bring souls to the kingdom, which will change our society. And this can happen overnight. We don't have to wait for the next election. We don't have to vote on this to see if it'll happen. Nineveh repented in the matter of two to three days. This can happen overnight if it would just catch fire in us, the people of God happens to us it'll happen in the next church and the next church and the next church and the next church as we begin to fellowship together a fire begins to breed and it blows through the kingdom of God and so we must come to the full understanding of Christ's supremacy above all things and that's why brothers and sisters next Sunday we are starting a study in the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is a book that challenge challenges every believer to make Christ supreme. He is better than everything else. Better than this. And as we study the book of Hebrews, you'll see how he was better than Moses, better than the angels, better than the high priests, better than the tabernacle, better than that. And then you move into your life and he's better than your desserts and he's better than your spouse and he's better than your job and he's better than anything else. Amen. He must be supreme. July 4th, Independence Day, we must maintain our independence by being completely dependent on Him. And we must raise Him up. So every firework that lights the sky, this celebration, consider it that it is to the glory of God that the light of the church is going to explode once again in this nation. And hopefully, as God would have mercy on the United States, save us for another hundred years. If you're in agreement with that, bow your heads right now.